Hi, Chia. Welcome to Network Capital. In this podcast, we try and understand why people do what they do. And you've had a really interesting, adventurous career. Um, we'd love to understand very briefly what you're doing today. And then we're going to dive deeper into some aspects of uh, your work. Thanks a lot, Akash. It's, uh, it's good to be here and get to chat and catch up. Um, so I can give a quick introduction to myself. Um, my background is mostly in early stage investing across emerging markets in Southeast Asia, India, um, etc., as well as previously being an uh, operator. Um, I think I've had a pretty unusual journey so far. So after high school in Singapore, spent a couple of years as a firefighter, did law at Cambridge, uh, running public policies, organizing uh, policy papers, research in places like Westminster, Brussels. And after that, having built a few organizations, decided after I graduated, I wanted to be more hands-on, get my hands dirty in places where I thought my effort would really yield a lot of results. So I joined Rocket Internet in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, was helping to build out the Sri Lanka office and we had a really good result as after a while, we, the company was bought over by, by Alibaba. And after that, was really struck by the whole startup uh, bug, especially on the ability to help multiple companies. So I went back to Singapore, was the fifth employee for a startup generator slash early stage VC called Antler, co-founded uh, by the ex-founder of Zalora. And was involved in, in de developing and running the first program for Antler, coaching the founders and rolling out some of the offices uh, across Europe. Um, over the past couple of years, I've also been dabbling a little bit in, in angel investing, have been, have been a bit uh, privileged to support some of the top founders in, in places like Bangladesh, Egypt, Indonesia, um, New York and London. Uh, and uh, quite recently, uh, joined Saison Capital as a, as a principal to build out the uh, investment team, investing in all kinds of verticals, but uh, specifically also in fintech um, across Southeast Asia, India, um, globally, um, and doing a whole bunch of interesting stuff across early stage equity, fund of funds, and, and, and debt. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically me in a nutshell. Wonderful. So you, from firefighting to law, um, to HBS 2 plus 2, I'm given to understand that you have an admission there, um, and investing. So that's quite a diverse portfolio. So tell us about uh, each of them a little bit, and if there are some common threads that connect the dots across them. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it is a wide uh, range of things. I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed that was pretty common across the board is, is, is trying to maintain this balance between getting things um, done and, and also kind of being slightly more intellectual about it, being able to be slightly more innovative. Um, so I think it's been a spectrum in, in, in my early part um, after high school, be, being on the firefighting side of things, obviously was slightly less uh, intellectual and more action oriented, which is I think some uh, where I, I, I've come to fundamentally view everything to to a more intellectual place uh, like Cambridge Law. Um, and that was something where I think very enjoyable in terms of being able to understand certain processes and frameworks and really challenging 
your analytical capability. Um, but I think ultimately where I landed was really in this mix of things where you're simultaneously very uh, focused on the analytical aspect of, of what you're doing, which is venture capital investing on both the qualitative and quantitative side of things, but also being extremely action oriented, being very hands on with founders, helping them in very concrete, actionable, non, uh, non high level uh, type ways. Um, and really pounding the ground, talking to founders, going to to cities all over uh, Southeast Asia, India, all, all over the world, and and really seeing things for yourself and seeing where the growth is and seeing lives really being affected by some of the companies and founders that uh, I've had the privilege to back. Um, tell us why you decided to study law and then not do law and do investing instead. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, I think uh, I, well, frankly, I, I, I did law because uh, I was a good uh, Asian guy and, and and my imagination when I was growing up was fairly limited. I always thought that, hey, you know, you either be a doctor or engineer or lawyer. Um, and I knew that of all those choices, I really wanted to build something and uh, build a business. And, and so I thought that law was a good way to get in. I don't regret the choice. I think it's given me a very good analytical framework to look at things and very uh, first principle uh, approach. But eventually realized that, hey, law is not exactly the uh, best way if you want to learn how to build something um, that could be potentially faster ways. So I jumped uh, and perhaps overreacted a little bit by, by going to join Rocket Internet in, 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 in South Asia. Uh, had a lot of fun. I think uh, that dramatic shift... Uh, dramatic shift towards operating really gives you a different perspective over how things are actually built in practice and, and, and less in theory. Investing, I think, is is a place where you have a very nice balance of both. You get to see across multiple industries and venture capital is the part of investing where you're a little bit more hands-on, where there's a lot more ambiguity which you have to face. So it's less about your analytical powers, but more about solving real problems in terms of helping founders, getting the information you need, etc. Um, and so that's been a very nice balance. Um, but I think long term, long term, I think that's uh, something that I, I'm very fascinated by. So how did the process of uh, thinking about business school come to you? <laughs> um, it feels like forever ago, but uh, I remember when I was first exploring how I could get involved in the startup scene, I was... Which year was that? Um, this was in my, I think, first and second year of, of undergrad. Um, I was really interested to, to try to figure out how I could get some exposure on that front. So I was, I was basically cold emailing uh, uh, people and founders on LinkedIn. These were like seed stage, pre-seed stage founders and, and saying, hey, you're a founder of something. I would like to get some experience. I'd like to, to see how I can help and like, let's see if we can build something together, uh, even if it's you know uh, part-time or even if it's an unpaid internship. Um, and I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of founders at the time were correctly a bit skeptical that I could uh, add value and, and, and they were uh, saying, oh, you're, you're a law student. Uh, I don't actually need any legal advice. Uh, so that's, that's all fine and good. Um, I think along the journey, I realized, oh, okay, uh, I should probably try to signal to the market that I'm, I'm, I'm changing 
uh, my focus and attention in a very dramatic way. Um, and so I decided, hey, what I think people respect the NBA for some reason. So let's let's go and, and, and try to get one. I think that would be a good way to signal to everyone that I'm, I'm uh, someone who really wants to be hands on with businesses and not just in the legal way. And so I applied, um, and I think you can see a little bit of the, the, the justification there for, for pivoting so, so violently into operations with startups. Yeah, and when you thought that you need, an, you need to signal to the market that you're not a lawyer but a business person, <laughs> uh, how did you go about uh, thinking about work experience, internship, picking the program? Because that's a lot to do, you know, especially when you're still an undergrad. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I slept much in undergrad. Um, I think that's the short answer. The long answer is, you know, I, I got really lucky. I had people who gave me the benefit of the doubt really early on. And, and of course, this was a little bit rare. So uh, I had to, to pound the, 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 the dirt, talk to as many people as possible and have a couple of them convince me. Um, when, I, when I began, uh, I was lucky enough, for example, that one of the top tier uh, VC funds uh, allowed me to spend some time uh, working for them as an internship uh, in undergrad. When I was looking for a job out of college, I was a bit lucky that, you know, out of the 80 plus uh, email uh, CEOs that I uh, cold emailed on LinkedIn, uh, a couple of them thought that my profile was interesting and that I was clearly really passionate about the field and so offered me positions uh, and and, uh, and really just uh, built on from there. It seems like you've been a big beneficiary of the art of writing cold emails. So tell <laughs> us the secret of uh, crafting an, a compelling email that gets a response. Yeah, um, I think I think one of the things that I tried to do, and I'm sure I was not always successful, was really trying to communicate how I could be helpful, what I learned. I I think I, what I realized pretty quickly was was two things. Number one, I think people were always more willing to help someone that they they saw a little bit of themselves in, uh, and less about quote unquote value add. Um, so really finding common grounds between you and the, the 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 people that could potentially help you out. I think that was something that was definitely quite relevant. I was lucky enough to have a couple of uh, university seniors that uh, really helped me out in a, in a big way. I think that's number one. I think the, the second thing also was at the very least giving people a either framework or extra information. I realized that uh, actually not, not many people needed analytical uh, capabilities in the sense that they weren't really looking out for, oh, hey, here's how I think your business strategy could look like, um, because chances are they, they know 2,000 times more than you. But I think what was always interesting was people were very interested to find out about what was going on in, in the adjacent uh, industries or the very adjacent business models that they never had time to explore, or they were very interested to see what kind of frameworks you would use to solve particular types of problems. And because that was frankly not something that they spent a lot of time on. And so being able to spend a little bit more time, provide some interesting insights and thoughts, um, even news articles from time to time, I think stuff like that really uh, piled up, compiled and, and helps you create a little bit of a community uh, of people that you can count on. 
many times it just comes down to taking the effort of uh, um, you know going that extra mile for the other person which a lot of people fail to do and uh, pay the price for it yeah no i think that's a good way to phrase it yeah absolutely so yeah back to your application process you know again tell us how you went about the entire process because uh, you not only have to write why you want to go to business school you also have to present what are your plans after how do you plan to spend the time at school so how did you think through the large amount of uh, stuff that you have to without having enough work experience or exposure how did you manage to condense time to work for you <laughs> that's a good question i think that one of the ways so the the approach that that in this specific case that i think that Harvard business school reacts quite well to is being able to understand what exactly your unique story is what exactly you bring to the table that you are not only the top 10% uh, in but that you uniquely uh, are filling that role so i think what i was a bit lucky enough to to get an understanding of when i was making my application was that i knew of very specific things that i was having very unique experiences in that i was fairly certain not many people had and combining all of that to to say that hey you know this is a very interesting field i think i've got a lot of experience in this and i think that this field is very important um and so specifically how i presented myself was as somebody who was trying to build something in the intersection between technology business and public policy and i think being one of the few people who was a law student who somehow built up a think tank um but also with i think fairly entrepreneurial uh philosophies and experiences and combining all of that into into something radically uh, different true uh my future in startups was something that i could say uniquely myself and uniquely uh important in that sense and so i think it really boils down to to understanding uh where your own strength lies having that journey um and being able to articulate why that's all important and what was the hardest part of writing the application for you i think as a so i was pretty young when i wrote that application and how old I, at that time uh 20 23 23 yeah all right So I think at the time I was still trying to figure out what type of person I am. So the I felt that the Harvard Business School application forces you to answer the question of what who you want to be, the type of person you are, um and 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 fundamentally that story that 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 is that person. And so I had 10 different ideas of the type of person I want I could potentially be. You know, before I graduated, I I could have so I could see myself as potentially a corporate exec or a private equity professional or a startup person or in in venture capital or building my own company and so I think that's you know dozens of stories of who you could be and I think that's the very tough part which is narrowing down what story you think makes the most sense being able to understand why certain stories uh, are, are more types of people that you think you could be but are not very interested in being 
um, and being able to narrow that down uh, in a way that is also very coherent with your own background, I think that's something that is that takes a lot of effort and that takes a lot of time. And so for me, being able to cut down all my experiences, being able to drill down exactly what motivated me and the types of experiences that I really enjoyed, that was very difficult. It took about three to four months uh, for me to really have a coherent narrative. Um, but I think uh, the output of that is a, a better understanding of myself, which is what I really enjoyed and, and why I, I generally encourage people to, to try out that, that application process, uh, if only to understand a bit more about yourself. Very well said. Could you now walk me through your interview? Because the two plus two interview is slightly different from the regular interview. So uh, how did you prepare for that? And how did you think you did? Yeah, um, I think that there are differences in the, the two plus two interview and the regular interview. I think the, the one main difference, of course, is the fact that there's only one interview in the two plus two interview. Uh, at least that was my experience. Um, whereas there's two in the, the regular admission process. Um, the My personal take on it, uh, of course not endorsed by HBS in any way, but my personal take is that what they're trying to do when you are in the interview itself is to, to tell you that they, they think that your story is one that HBS accepts and enjoys and that they are that they, they think that's very interesting, but they'd like to test you on that. And there are many ways that they could test you. So for example, I have friends who who perhaps portray themselves in as very passionate about certain fields that they might not have been. And so I, I think one thing that they're quite experienced is, is, is spotting on potential weaknesses in passion. And so they'll drill down and, and ask very specific questions about that field. And that's their way of kind of finding a reason to, to reject you at that stage. Then there are other times where perhaps they see that maybe they, they find some of your accomplishments um, uh, slightly vague or slightly unexplainable at that stage. And so they really want you to be able to justify or explain in greater detail specific aspects of it. So as you can see, I'm, I'm describing multiple ways to basically poke holes in a story that they've already accepted. And so you really have to come in very well prepared. You have to be able to very strongly justify the type of person or the type of story that you've portrayed yourself to be, not only in logic and principle, but also in actual experience, um, and in actual things that you've done. Thoughtful advice, Chi, I must say. Um, walk me through the day you got your acceptance from the two, HBS 2 plus 2 program. <laughs> That's actually a funny story. Uh, I, I changed about 15% of my essay the night, or rather the hour before I submitted. So and why did you do that? Uh, I had some pretty good advice uh, from a few friends who pointed out certain uh, flaws in, in certain portrayals. And so I, I made a couple of quick adjustments, which didn't affect the story fundamentally, but made it uh, slightly more tight. Um, so I, I was not sure, you know, how, how it was going to go. I, I didn't feel after the interview, I didn't feel it went super well. And so I, I 
actually pretty much resigned uh, to ha not having come uh, gone in, and it was two weeks before my exam, so I was basically trying to push it out of my mind. Uh, 30 minutes before I got the results, I was with my uh, professor and I was just telling her about the whole process. I, I was telling her that was a very interesting process, but yeah, I, I didn't get in. You know, it was a long shot anyway. So, ah, well, if, if you know any students that are applying down the road, feel free to put them in touch with me. I'm happy to give whatever advice I could. And the professor was just being very understanding and, and, and uh, consoling me a little bit. And so went... Uh, uh, went down to the canteen uh, or cafe where, where my college uh, uh, mates were hanging out with them. Suddenly received an email, uh, opened it up. I think I just saw the first word, which was congratulations, and then uh, immediately started celebrating with everyone. Uh, my teacher heard me, came down and said, oh, yeah, hey, I thought you told me you didn't get in. What is this? Um, so <laughs> it was... Uh, very, really, really awesome day. I think uh, I had the privilege to spend it with my friends, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was a good day. I think I got a little bit too distracted celebrating uh, for my exams, uh, celebrating for the results, than for then preparing for my exams that happened two weeks after. Yeah, must <laughs> be a special feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, it was definitely definitely really enjoyable. So the two, like once you got the admit, uh, you just have at least two up to four years where you can try out different things, get solid work experience. Um, and I think by then you decided that investing is something that you enjoy. So how did you plan to spend the two to four years? And uh, if you look at your life today, is it broadly aligned with the thought process that you had at the time you got your results? That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I can certainly craft a very good story justifying everything from, from uh, justifying backwards um, by saying I've always wanted to build a company and, and there are always a certain set of skills that you need, right? You need to have operating experience. You need to have the right network, brands, uh, analytical thinking, access to certain resources to build a company. And, and the way I like to think about it is, you know, you build up experience in, in all those fronts and you place yourself in the position where you have both inbound and outbound access to those types of resources. Um, but frankly, I, I had no idea what I was going to do um, specifically. Um, looking backwards, I, I certainly, you know, before I graduated, I certainly didn't think that I was going to go to Pakistan. Um, after that experience, I certainly didn't uh, realize I was going to go back to Singapore and then into Stockholm and into Amsterdam and all these countries. And then certainly don't, didn't, didn't imagine that I would be working in a, uh, in a Japanese fund, being able to look at fintech, being able to deploy in such interesting ways. Um, so I think I think where where I land at is I I did set very specific macro goals for myself. I, I wanted to be able to accomplish uh, uh, certain access to talent, resources, knowledge, etc. And I think within that very large boundaries, I found myself kind of being thrown around within the that ecosystem in a, in a positive way 
Um, and I, I feel like that's that's uh, uh, that's a little bit of the messiness of life. Um, but overall, uh, I'm I'm pretty happy in terms of the progress I've made within these large macro goals. Who are your mentors, and how do you be in touch with them? And what advice do you have for people who are trying to build a tribe of mentors? That's a that's an interesting question. I think I've been thinking about that uh, a lot myself. I think that the one very obvious uh, piece of advice that that is probably underutilized is that mentors are found at every stage in life. Uh, and specifically what I mean by that is that your mentors will not just be a particular age group. and It will be a widespread from extremely senior people um, and specifically even people who are much younger than yourself. I think one of the first uh, few mentors that I, I really learned a lot from was uh, three years younger than me. Um, and I, I still would happily take his advice uh, even today because I think he's just gotten a lot smarter since then. <clears throat> um, and some of the, the mentors I've got are all much older than me. Um, I think that that's number one. Uh, age really doesn't matter. I, I've, I've been given the best advice from people younger than me. I've also been given really good advice from people much older than me. <clears throat> I think that one thing we should probably be aware of when it comes to choosing mentors, besides choosing one from all stages in life, is that the environment that we live in changes extremely quickly. I think principles and rules and heuristics that we hold uh, go out of date super fast. And that's why one of the best skills that you that I feel like I want to to really refine is once you've built up mentors across many stages in life uh, of all ages, you are you then come up with your own heuristics based on the different frequently conflicting advice that you're given. And I think that's the ultimately the, the most important skill, which is you're going to have people, very smart people, who disagree with them all the time. And you need to, over time, build up your own set of heuristics for why specific types of advice make sense and specific types of advice don't make sense um, in across multiple situations. And so it's really about uh, managing that, building your own first principles, and, and less about, less about I think, finding mentors who, who can give you that piece, one piece of advice and then you follow that piece of advice and it leads you to success. I don't, I'm not convinced that that is so straightforward anymore. That's precious advice. I think if unless and until you have your own hypothesis, you can go from pillar to post and uh, not know whether you're in the right direction or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that I've had in my interactions with my own mentors is that they also appreciate sometimes when I when I take their piece of their advice and just follow it to the letter and come back with with the results that they predicted. And sometimes they appreciate the fact that I I I, I fight back a little bit and say that may not may gel with some of the experiences that I'm seeing and this is the reasons why. Um, and they sometimes, or at least hopefully, uh, learned a little bit from that. And I think it's a little bit of that conversation that fundamentally takes place. Yeah, it's the follow-up is key. I mean, follow-up and you and thank you, I feel, are two critical aspects of building a strong mentor-mentee relationship. Because if a mentor helps you or has helped you, he or she would like to know how you how you put that advice into practice and uh, whether it had any tangible result or not. 
And also sometimes if you benefit from the advice, it always a thank you never hurts. It just also shows that you're not opportunistic about this relationship and you're really sincere about building it long term rather than, you know, keeping it transactional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll make one one quick point here also that uh, one thing that I find surprisingly helps is um, if you're if you're always kind of being around people who are slightly older than your age group or slightly more senior in your station in life, uh, it, it just becomes a lot easier to to get the information or advice uh, or networks that that you need to to really uh, move to the point where they are. One hundred percent. Actually, one a more aspect of your uh, work uh, and life that I admire is that you've truly built uh, an international community uh, where you can scout for talent, scout for companies. So whether you're investing as as an angel or trying to invest as part of your venture capital fund, you have a broad you know community to draw upon. We've met in London, San Francisco, um, Singapore, and so forth. So what's your advice to people who want to build such a community that they can draw upon? And uh, related to that, what's the difference in the startup slash investing ecosystem that you're seeing in Asia, Southeast Asia, India, Western Europe, and the US? Long questions, but would love your perspective. Yeah, I'll take that in part. So I think the first part's about community. Um, I think I think the thing about community is is frankly just curiosity. I I was just always endlessly curious about how different people thought about things. Um, I, I certainly didn't agree with with a lot of that, but especially you know when I was starting out trying to understand more of the world, I, I made a huge effort in terms of just meeting lots of people, no matter where I was. Um, and over time, I think that compounded and. Fundamentally, the world is a lot smaller than we think. I think that the the amount of curious people who are actively reaching out to each other across the world to understand more about it is is actually not that big. Um, and, and then after a while, you know, you have this community of of really interesting people who who've seen so much and are willing to share, like yourself. Um, and and you you have a compounding of of knowledge. You are able to start to look at things not just in the first order, which is what was presented to you by a stranger, but also second order, third order, based on all the amalgamation of, of data that you start to have. And I think that's where some of these conversations start to become super interesting. Um, and, you know, being f- freely sharing all that information with other people, finding common threads uh, to share, I think that helps to really propel that along. Um, there are very common first principles that that are viable across multiple geographies, especially among like-minded, curious people. And I think over time, you just kind of uh, be part of that network and community. And I think that's uh, always super interesting. Um, so that's the first part of the question. I think the second part is about the startup ecosystem. Um, yeah, I think I've been a little bit lucky that in the past year, I've, I've spent a bit of time helping uh, Antler in the European startup ecosystem, especially uh, uh, Amsterdam, a little bit in London and, and Stockholm, um, and also spent a little bit of time in San Francisco this year, which was a very eye-opening experience for myself, as well as, of course, being fundamentally an emerging markets uh, investor based out of Singapore, now looking at Southeast Asia, India. And I think 
it's very interesting to see the different approaches. You start to understand actually uh, different stages of the evolution for the startup ecosystem. You can see that you know a lot of people talk about cycles and and in, in different orders of, of growth. And when you are in those markets, you can actually see that for yourself. And so that gives you that gives you a very strong idea of the specific first principles that are in play. E.g., um, you require X Y Z foundation before you can move on to the second tier order of disruption, uh, and after that you can see the third tier, and this is what the third tier, second tier, first tier looks like based on the different markets that you see. These are the localized um, considerations that have affected the order of disruption, etc. And, and and just being able to compare and contrast, which is not super hard to do. Uh, once you have the data, which run a few, um, becomes very interesting and you get to have some pretty interesting meta-level insights, which I did enjoy. Um, so that's definitely one piece of it. Um, I think the second piece of it also is I just realized how much I have to learn. <laughs> I think that some some ecosystems are definitely more mature than others. and and I, you know, greatly respect some of the, uh, eco- the, the ecosystems all around the world, uh, U.S., China, India, Europe. Um, I think that, for example, as someone who's sitting out of Southeast Asia, there's a lot for me to learn from. There's literally um, millions of, of data points that you can take and, and, and combine in different ways to see how uh, more efficient business models, more efficient execution and ops can be carried out. Um, they have been tried and tested, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so for me, being able to see that from a very macro perspective, being able to understand what that all looks like, I think that's uh, that's something that is quite interesting and something I, I love to continue doing. Last question. Two and a half years to go before you join HBS. Um, how do you plan to spend them? What are your personal and professional goals? <laughs> um, love to, I think for me right now, as a, as a investor, building up my track record, being able to work very closely with passionate founders who are doing very interesting things. I think that the markets that we are more familiar with, uh, that I operate in, in kind of emerging uh, markets are very idiosyncratic. I think that there are pieces of it that people are really still trying to understand from a first principle perspective. So I think working with some of these uh, top founders, being able to to work on that specific strategy together and being able to connect them to the rest of the world, connect them to what they need. Um, I think that's part of the fun, part of what I'm aiming to do um, over the next uh, couple of years and uh, get good results. Wonderful. Chia, it's been such a delight talking to you and I really hope we can do a follow-up in some time because you've covered such a wide area of subjects. I'm really uh, grateful for your time and this will go out to about 100,000 subscribers who will be learning from you and reaching out at a different time. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Lukash.